Thank you, Simon. We're continuing then in a series uh, which we've just called Moses, Shepherd of a Nation. And uh, we're now reaching Exodus chapter 12. So in Exodus chapter 12, we come to the institution of the Passover. Last time we saw the event of the Passover, which was effectively the tenth of terrible and horrible plagues that hit Egypt in God's judgment of that nation and also his deliverance of his people, most important event really in Jewish history, uh, gave them their identity as we're going to see this morning. But not only is there the event, but if you uh, look at the scriptures as the story is happening, they are to institute this ongoing thing called the Passover. So you can refer to the Passover as when actually they were set free, or you can think of the Passover as an annual event that all Israel gathered to celebrate. And this is uh, instituted right in the midst of it all happening. So we're having a kind of second look, really, at the Passover from that point of view. So I'm in Exodus uh, chapter 12, and uh, if you're here for the first time, I have the infuriating habit of using a different translation to the one you've just been given. It's just to confuse you. And uh, so I'm reading from the NASB. It won't be very different. Okay. Exodus 12, and I'm reading up, I'm picking up from verse 21. Exodus 12, 21 uh, to 34 initially. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he's promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn, even of the cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, go, Worship the Lord as you said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you said and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land 
in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, and their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. Verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you've circumcised him, he may eat of it. A sojourner or hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You're not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of singing your praise. Thank you for the wonder of your faithfulness, Lord. We, we gather to you. We thank you we've come to know you, understand something of your wonderful kindness. And Father, we ask now, in the name of Jesus, for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Be our teacher. Help us to engage with you individually, to hear our Heavenly Father speak to us. Come let your word do us good this morning. We pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. At the moment, uh, at the movie house in Kingston and elsewhere, there's a movie called Before I Go to Sleep. Uh, starring Colin Firth and Nicole Kidman. And I've not seen this movie, but I've seen a trailer of it on my phone. And uh, it seems that uh, Nicole Kidman has this terrible problem that every morning she wakes up, she doesn't know who she is. She has no recollection of any previous day. So every new day she wakes, everything's a mystery. She knows nothing. And then it says in the trailer that she has a, a time with a doctor who encourages her during her waking hours to take a kind of video selfie and talk to her camera so that the next day she's got something to recall of what happened the day before because she, she doesn't know who she is. I mean, that's a terrible tragedy to not know who you are and to have no recollection of where you come from. I guess the Bourne Identity movies are based on a similar theme of wondering who you are, find out who am I, who am I, what's my identity. And here, having this kind of selfie, having this kind of, well, this is, a, this is what happened yesterday, you can at least build on that. You can begin to build on your past. You can have this symbol that you carry into the future. And uh, it's an interesting theme. Last week, Wendy and I went to the Tower of London 
And the saw what's currently on show won't be there for much longer. I think it goes in November when Remembrance Sunday comes around. There are some thousands of poppies planted. You may have seen pictures of it. I've put a picture of it on, uh, on my website. You might like to look at it. It's an amazing scene. And you've probably seen it in newspapers where every person who laid down their life is commemorated by a poppy planted and it's so it's so designed that it looks like a river pouring out of one of the uh, the window frames and then coming like a great red river of sea uh, a sea of blood as it were these individual poppies it's very moving uh, to stand there and look at it and we were among hundreds to be honest it was a pleasant day on Monday in the sunshine uh, just to stand and stare and to be absolutely moved to be honest at this memory of our history and we went from there actually to the Museum of London which I've never been to before which is very nearby and again I would uh, encourage you to go and see such a thing because again you see something of our history something of where we come from something of our identity and it's just fascinating to see there in that museum such a thing as in, in the year 1100 when, the, when London was still quite a small town. There were over a hundred churches in London and there were a number of monasteries that supplied hospital care and education and the huge influence of the church and the Christian faith that was shaping a city and a nation. And so this kind of concept of carrying over from our past to recognize what our identity is in the present is behind this whole thing. Last time we looked at the actual event, Israel had been in captivity for 400 years. They'd been slaves. God had said that that would happen. He told Abraham ages before this would take place. Now had come the time of phenomenal escape. And we saw last time that that was a demonstration of God's compassion. He heard their cry. He saw their need. And this was a huge display of the mercy and the kindness of God. That he wasn't going to leave them in slavery any longer. We saw also it was a demonstration of God's judgment. That God was going to judge that nation for its cruelty, its wiping out of lives, destruction of babies. A horrendous culture had been developed under this great powerful pharaoh. And in fact it was the most powerful nation and empire in the world at that time. And God was going to judge that whole culture and, and going to destroy in every family. And then we saw thirdly, it was a demonstration of how God shows mercy because they were each one, each family, to take a perfect lamb and make the lamb a substitute for their home. So the Israelites were given very specific instructions. Take this lamb, kill it, put blood on your doorposts and hide inside. And that's showing us the way of salvation God had ordained. A substitute lamb has to stand in the place of everyone who would have died. We saw also it was a display of God's incredible majesty that he said to Pharaoh that his name might be known throughout all the earth. There were these plagues, this confrontation, and in the end it was a huge demonstration of who God is. It wasn't just an escape. It wasn't just slaves run for it. Even Pharaoh's reluctance, God was involved in that. 
He, Pharaoh could have said, yes, okay, go straight away. But God allowed the thing to grow and grow and grow and grow so there might be a huge demonstration of who God is. And then we saw also it was the forming of a nation. Okay, so we must press on then and look at now the ongoing national event called the Passover. And it's interesting to us as Christians in the 21st century because something that every church will do, namely to have Holy Communion, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, all these names that get used are describing this one thing which had its origins and its birthplace in the Passover. It was while Jesus was celebrating the Passover with the 12 disciples that he introduced, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body for you. And then he poured out wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And down through the centuries, people have celebrated that and have these various different titles, which are all hidden in Scripture, for what took place. So it's relevant to us, as we'll see more and more as we go through. But I want to start by looking at what happened and how this was instituted in this day with these Israelite people who at that time were the people of God. First of all, I want to say it was a, it was a meal to be eaten. All right? It was a meal to be eaten. It wasn't a creed to be recited. This wasn't just an intellectual uh, uh, deal, exercise. It was something they were to eat. It was something they were to experience with their senses and with their body. It was an engagement of the whole body. And it wasn't just like the Greeks, for instance. The Greeks' attitude to the human body was that it was to be despised. It was like a cage for your immortal spirit. And uh, to, to pass away was to release your immortal spirit, your body, uh, despised, really. That's not, that's not the Jewish concept, nor is it a biblical concept. God is interested in us as a whole, and you'll find references to eating, which kind of underline the dignity of humanity and who, what a human being is, is recurring again and again in the Bible. Even in the, even in the Garden of Eden, yes, they were told what not to eat, but they were also told far more what they could eat. There was nourishment all around. That was the promise of God. When they went into the promised land, it was described as a land of milk and honey. It was not an, uh, a land of philosophy. It was a land of planting and growing and eating and nourishment. And then you get this extraordinary passage in Exodus 24, which has always fascinated me, where it says that the elders went up the mountain in uh, Exodus 24, verse 9, Moses with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel um, they, uh, uh, ascended this mountain. They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he didn't stretch out against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. That's got to be an extraordinary meal. There's people sitting and eating and seeing God and there's no explanation of this. It's just a phenomenal thing that these people somehow had a touch of something of eternal significance. This reference then to sitting and eating. You find that Jesus, when he first started his ministry, his very first sign 
It was not done as uh, Satan suggested to him by throwing himself down from the temple, but was done at a meal, at a wedding party. Uh, he, he, he conducted his very first sign there, something very symbolic, something very significant that he did it there. Then again, he was renowned for being eating with sinners. I mean, that was horrific to the Jewish people because eating with people was saying something. Eating with people was full of symbolism and significance. It wasn't a casual deal. And so there Jesus ate with people. And then even after his resurrection, you find this reference to eating again. You find that uh, he appears uh, in a room full of people. Says, Have you anything to eat? Is kind of the first question. And then on the Emmaus Road, when he's talked to these two, it says when he sat and broke bread with them, then asked the Lord. When he meets with Simon Peter by the side of the lake, when he's had an abortive attempt at fishing, he's prepared breakfast for him and eats with him. It's a strange kind of emphasis that comes through again and again. We read in Acts 2, describing the early church, day by day, continuing with one another, in one mind, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Ultimately, at the end of the Bible, we read about what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we find Jesus saying this towards the end of his ministry, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Bible makes a great deal of resurrection life Not, as I say, the Greek concept of the immortality of the soul, the soul being rescued, but the resurrection of the body. There's a permanent purpose in God in giving us a body. Yeah, we know it's going to be a different kind of a body. We know it's going to be so perishable. And you can, I I went to my dear friend Nigel Ring's farewell uh, from the church in Brighton last night. And uh, there were dear friends of ours. Nigel Ring is uh, known to some of you, I suppose unknown to many of you perhaps. He served with me as the administrator of New Frontiers for 30 years. And uh, he served that church the uh, same number of years. And uh, there was a gathering to say goodbye as he's moving a house. And there was a kind of gathering of us oldies. And uh, <laughs> it's quite fascinating seeing faces you hadn't seen for 20 years. So, Wow, that's been lived in for 20 more years, hasn't it? And uh, they're probably thinking exactly the same of me as I think, man alive, look at him. And uh, as my barber last week, he loves to do this, took my thing, and then he shows you from the top, and you know, nothing there. And uh, we're going to be sown <laughs> perishable, okay, perishable product, um, but raised imperishable. Not forget body, no, raised imperishable. This is a a Christian doctrine, a biblical doctrine. The body counts. Raised, imperishable. It says sown in dishonor. Yep. Raised in glory. The body, sometimes bodies get frailer and frailer. And sometimes people carry a lot of physical limitations even right through their lives. You see bodies that struggle to exist and face huge challenges. And it says in the Bible, they'll be sown in dishonor, raised in glory. 
when we all die, we'll all be in dishonor. Death is dishonoring. In fact, we're being raised in glory. We'll be sown in weakness. We'll be raised in power. We'll be sown a natural body and raised, here's a difficult one, a spiritual body. We won't have time to think about that now. But we'll be raised a spiritual body. Not just a spirit, a spiritual body. So the Bible is telling us there's something here about humanity. We're not going to float up into the sky on clouds and sing number 73 again. We're going to have new bodies in what the Bible says, new heavens and new earth, defying all imagination. Sometimes you look at creation and you think, God, how could it be better? How could it be more wonderful? But it will be. There's going to be new creation, something magnificent. Who knows what God's plans are, even for his vast universe. There's a magnificent future to look forward to with great, great excitement. And something about this eating together to remember it's more than just in your brain it's more than saying the creed together it's sitting and eating it's kind of more than a philosophical concept this was to be built into their society it was a meal to be eaten secondly it was a meal for a people it was a meal for a people it wasn't a to-go you know, you're going to Starbucks. Is this for here or to go? It's not a drive through McDonald's. You know, get it as you go. It's not even a TV meal. It's a family meal. You eat it together. You gather together. And there are other places and instructions about Passover you'll find scattered through the Scriptures so that isolated individuals were to be brought into a family. An isolated person should not be left alone. You don't celebrate Passover alone. You get drawn into a family. This is a family deal. And so this is saying something, again, this, this is something being communicated to us. It's a family event. And, and it says this, it's for you and your children forever. I read that to you a moment ago. It's for you and your children. And then it says this, then... When your child says, what does this mean? You are to say to them, this is what happened to us. This is how we proceeded. And actually you are to say it as though it was a present thing. In verse 27, you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians. And you'll find later in the scriptures it talks about we're to say this is how we were freed. It's like it's how we experienced it. It's not just this is what happened to our forefathers. It's what happened to us. So every generation owns it as though we were there, as though we were part of it. This is who we are. This is what happened to us. We were slaves. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We had, we had we're in total bondage. We couldn't raise an army to defeat Pharaoh. God came. God freed us. God opened the Red Sea. God brought us out. You're to explain to your children. And so, beloved, we see the place, the important place of the family around the meal table that is here in the Bible. And I want to encourage us practically from that point of view. We live in a generation of fragmentation. We live in a generation where children not only have their meals in their rooms, they have their television in their rooms. A scattering family. The family around the table is a massive privilege. 
I want to encourage some of us who are starting our families here. The family around the table is a cherished memory of mine as we raised our kids. Around the table. And for us at breakfast, it would be with the Bible open. And there would always be something. And so some would say, well, it says here, now when you're, it became quite a developed culture so that it, it was prescribed and the son would ask certain questions. It was almost prescribed. It became a bit liturgical. So the, the older son would ask this question, the father would reply. It became liturgical as time went by. But it's, the whole point is telling the next generation who we are. Let's not forget. We didn't wake up this morning and think, what are we doing on the planet? Who am I? I don't know who I am. Now we've got a history that tells us who we are. We don't have to take another selfie. We've got this Passover that's reminding us of our history. It's giving us identity. It's who we are. We were slaves. We got freed. God did an amazing thing. And the father's telling the sons. And beloved, again, let me just say this. Fathers telling sons around the table. See, sometimes people say, oh, I don't push it down the throat of my kid. I want my kid to be, you know, make up his own mind. You know, there's lots of voices out there. Just because I am, I don't. Hey, what are you talking about? We have a glorious inheritance. And we need to feed our sons, our daughters, with revelation of the mercy and kindness of God. We've got a history. We've got something to tell. We're a people who've experienced God. They'll have plenty of opportunity for other thoughts to be imposed upon them as time goes by. This was built into the life of Israel. Fathers telling sons. And may I say it this way, not even just saying, oh, your mother will do that. This is big enough for them. It's not just, oh, your mother will talk to you about those things. Fathers, teach your sons. Let us see, this is, this is a manly thing. As well as a feminine thing. It's the whole deal, but certainly not something that men should abdicate from. So fathers, teach your sons. <coughs> and then it says, it's not for the casual guests. <coughs> it's for God's people. It's for God's family. So casual guests were not allowed to have it. If you were just passing through, if you were just a sojourner, it says in the passage I read to you, they were not allowed to touch it. It was, it was for the people. It was, it was for them to celebrate what God had done for them. It's for them to enjoy the, the, the memory, what God did. It's not a casual deal. It's, oh, we'll try this, we'll try that. No, no, it's not allowed. You're not allowed to touch it. It's only for people who are part of this family. But if you're slave... Or if the, the person who wants to become part, yes, then they must be circumcised, which was the way of being marked to be a child of God. In other words, you take on board the identity. The meal's for the people with the identity. The meal's not just casual, it's for people who belong to this people. And so they say, yes, I, I'm taking this seriously. I want to be added to this people. We'll see as we go on through the story uh, of the story of Moses as we pursue it in the forthcoming weeks and months, um, <coughs> we'll see that a, a multitude went out. Thanks, Tom. A multitude went out with the Israelites. A whole crowd of Egyptians went with them. They went, no doubt the signs, the wonders, the, the realization, this is an authentic God. They went with them. 
And if you wanted to go with, you had to be truly numbered with them. Excuse me, sorry. <coughs> so here's a family meal, a meal for a people, and then a meal which had very meaningful features. Okay, we haven't time to go into all the detail, but one of the things they ate was bitter herbs. Bitter herbs were to remind them of the awful experience of being slaves, the sense of privilege and wonder to be set free from it. And so this meal, which was to be celebrated once a year, they all gathered and it had to be done in Jerusalem. It was, it was part of the meal was the bitter herbs. They had to say, this is what it was like. This is, this is what we used to be in. We were, it was a terrible experience. Slavery was terrible. And God set us free. It had to be with uh, bitter herbs. It also had to be with unleavened bread. Now that seems to be saying two things if you look at the passage. Two things. One was it was done in such haste. They were told, get ready, go. Get your sandals on, get your staff in your hand. You're eating this just before you go. This is your last meal, you're going. Get ready to go. Uh, so there's a sense which I haven't got time for leavened bread, just to have, to have it unleavened. That, that's built in. The sense of urgency is built in. But there's another thing that's built in, and it has to do with the yeast, which we'll come back to a little more later on. But the yeast was supposed to relate to Egypt's value system. That's the kind of symbolism, the yeast of Egypt. And the way yeast was worked was that you would take dough and you'd take a little from the last batch and put some of the last batch into the new batch and it has a kind of life in itself which yeasted the next batch. And then you'd always leave a little and take some from the old, put it in the new and that yeasted it. So yeast was always taking something from what was left over from before. It was something that had its origins elsewhere, its roots elsewhere, and you're taking what was there and putting it into the new, and, and that helps it grow. And, and there's this, is, no, you don't have this. You have unleavened bread. And uh, you'll find reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread just before Passover, and it, they would take for seven days to make sure there was no yeast in the house. It's like we're going to get rid of any sign of that culture from which we've come. And again, there became a kind of liturgy with this as Israel went on, where they would go through the house with a candle and with tongs, searching to see if they could find any yeast. And if you found any of the old yeast, you throw it out. That's the symbolism. That this, we're not going to have anything from the old culture built into the new. And you'll find that referred to quite plainly in the passage. So here you've got Herbs, bitter herbs. So this is a meal. It's not just saying the creed together. I was in the church in The Hague the other week, uh, three weeks ago. Had a terrific meeting. Wonderful new church getting on. And they said, we're going to say the creed together this morning. Which actually was a wonderful part of the worship. Said the creed together. Uh, now that's a fun. But this is not a meal. We're engaging with it. We're over this meal together. We're remembering. We're, we're taking this on board. We eat these herbs we eat this unleavened bread. And then thirdly, of course, the lamb itself. Blood on the doorpost, lamb on the inside. They had to eat it all. They had to eat this lamb. They had to fully, fully identify with this substitute that had died on their behalf. Blood on the outside, meat on the inside. It's like you're surrounded. You're a Passover people. You're a people fully identified. You're a people... 
who are engaging with this. You're taking this totally into yourself. You're thanking God that when the blood's outside, fury goes over your home. All sin is forgiven. All guilt and shame is put away. All the handwriting that's against you is forgotten because the blood takes your place. And you celebrate it and you eat it with gratitude and thankfulness. That's the the background of this, that they were to enjoy and be, as it were, almost surrounded by blood outside, meat inside. This is who I am. This is where I come from. This is why I'm no longer a slave. This is full identification. Full identification. So that's, that's, that's the Passover, as quickly as we get through it. These are the, some of the features, the ingredients. Now let's bring that right into the uh, New Testament then. So, in the New Testament, we find the story of Jesus, and he celebrates the Passover. Just prior to his crucifixion, he celebrates. He goes up to Jerusalem. They had to do it in Jerusalem. It's not just something you do in your home, wherever. Once a year, all Israel or families would travel up to Jerusalem. Josephus, the old Jewish historian, said sometimes Jerusalem would have up to three million people in it. That figure's been challenged by later uh, authorities, it would have been at least hundreds of thousands coming in from the scattered, you know Israel was very scattered internationally as was apparent on the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world Jewish people who gathered in maybe half a million maybe some hundreds of thousands Israel would be, I mean Jerusalem would be packed, absolutely packed with people come up for the feast and there would be tens of thousands of lambs in the fields around Jerusalem, being prepared for Passover. Israel was a very lamb-conscious society. We sometimes don't kind of put it in its background, which gives it relevance. So when Jesus first appeared on the scene, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not kind of a funny philosophical concept. This is a nation very aware every year Tens of thousands of lambs are being slain. Every household knows what this is about. This is relevant to them. They know what we're talking about here. Lambs were eaten every year. This was something they always did. This is the lamb. This is the ultimate lamb of God. The ultimate one who actually was crucified on the exact moment when Passover was celebrated. Now you find the gospel accounts and take far too long to look at it. It looks like Jesus and his disciples celebrated the day before. They had Passover together as a little kind of family together. It looks like he had Passover before the day. But his actual day of death was exactly when the Passover lambs would have been crucified. He is the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is the ultimate Passover. He, as so much of the Old Testament, is just preparing us for the new. That's what Jesus it says in Luke 24. He, starting from Moses and all the scriptures, he explained to them everything concerning himself. Because the Old Testament's full of teaching about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus, all building to Jesus. And so here we find Jesus as the ultimate 
Passover. And then you got, I wonder if you've noticed this. It says, at the transfiguration, where Jesus was incredibly suddenly shining with divine glory, and Moses and Elijah were present on that mountain. It says they were discussing, it says this in Luke's account, they were discussing the departure that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. But the word departure, which is used in most modern English translations, the actual Greek word is exodus. They were discussing the exodus. And that's why you understand that word accomplish. You don't usually accomplish a departure. We're going to leave here today. We won't talk about accomplishing it. Maybe some of you students left home and came back. You didn't accomplish. But here they're talking about the exodus which he's going to accomplish. Because our ultimate Passover is going to bring forth not a Jewish slave nation, but people out of every tribe and language and tongue, a people for himself. He's going to bring a people right out. He's going to rescue. Another exodus is going to happen. People are going to be rescued. It's like every nation has its exodus. Every nation suddenly hears about Jesus and has opportunity to come out from that culture into Jesus' culture. Come right out from what they used to think and how they had their thinking and value system and, and bring themselves into a new world through re- believing in Jesus, understanding he is their Passover. He's the ultimate exodus. He's the ultimate Passover. And even when we baptize people, we're, we're, we're kind of plunging them in like, they, like we're, uh, when they went into the Red Sea. And we're saying plunging in, coming out, newness of life. That's all finished. That's over. New, we're coming through into new life. All of this is speaking in kind of picture language of what's happening to the church. Of people who, yes, we were in slavery, the Bible says. It says in Ephesians 6, you were slaves. You were slaves. Thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You were rescued from slavery. Jesus, our Passover, has rescued us. Now, what, what are the implications for that? What's interesting is how the New Testament referred to the Passover. So, if you read in 1 Corinthians 5, you find Paul writing to a Gentile church. All right? So, he's gone to Corinth, and he's actually scared to go to Corinth, because it was such a pagan city. And you can read the story of it in the book of Acts, how he arrived there and how God spoke to him and said, don't be frightened, Paul. I've got many people in this city. There's many people that are going to become Christians here. He tells him that in advance. And Paul goes in and preaches and a church gets formed in Corinth. Now, it's not a church that brings Paul a lot of joy in that it's very inconsistent in its lifestyle. And they actually get into gross sin. Well, at least one guy does in the church. There's incest in the church. And it's interesting how Paul writes to this Gentile church, certainly predominantly Gentile. And he says, what are you doing? And he says this to them, and they are Gentiles. He says, what are you doing? Even the Gentiles don't live like this. Well, we are Gentiles. No, no, you're not Gentiles anymore. Even the Gentiles don't do this. What are we then? Well, you're the church. 
It's like you're not Gentiles anymore. You're Christians now. In contrast, even the Gentiles don't do this kind of thing. But we are. No, no, you're not. You're church now. It's a different deal. And then he says this to them. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Imagine writing that to a Gentile people. Christ, our Passover. I live in Corinth. The gospel builds us into this people and gives us identity beyond just our natural roots. So you'll find Paul writes to like the church in, says, to the church in, in Christ in Colossae. <laughs> you live in Colossae, but you're actually in Christ. You live in Kingston, but actually you're in Christ. You have your roots here, but you are now a new community. You're a new culture. You, you live a different kind of way because well, our Passover has been slain. The Passover's happened. You're free. You're out. What are you doing living like Gentiles? What are you doing living by the standards of people around you? How can you? Christ, our Passover. He's, he's been sacrificed. That calls us into a new dimension, a new address, a new age even. It's behind us. It's gone. We've come out. We're, we're through the exodus. Christ, our part. He's writing, see, he's writing this to Gentile city. And yet he's incorporating them in this Old Testament concept. Jesus has died. He has made us a completely new people. And then he says, now, get rid of that old leaven. So he uses, keeps on applying this imagery of the Passover. He says to these Gentile Christians, get rid of the old leaven. And so here, Gentiles have been taught this Old Testament stuff. People raised on Greek philosophy, people raised on Plato and so on, they've been taught, no, this is relevant to you. This is relevant to you. You are a new community now. We're building God's alternative society. This is a different kind of community. It's not for everybody. It's for you. You shouldn't be living this way. And dear friends, that's one of the challenges we face in a nation like England where you can get thought for the day on radio in the morning where people generalize about morality. You know, why can't we do this as a nation? Why can't we do... That's not the Bible way. The Bible way doesn't generalize to a whole nation about morality. The Bible says to people who trust in Passover blood and get their identity from the fact that a substitute died in their place so that they go free, that they have a completely different value system. We're not generalizing Christian values we're saying there are people who stepped out of bondage into freedom. They are a new culture. They gather as family and they live under King Jesus. They live knowing they have eternal life, knowing they have a completely different destiny, get a new body, hallelujah, in a new heavens and a new earth. My whole destiny is thoroughly different. I've escaped from futility and emptiness and where is it all going and what's the point? I've escaped all that. And that's what Paul said to these early Christians. He said to the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. 
you've got a completely different perspective. You used to just serve idols, any old stuff you give yourself to, the terrible ungodliness of the Greek culture, sexual perversion, just absolute nonsense and terrible philosophies that lent themselves to that. You've turned from it to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. Your hope is somewhere totally different. Your aspirations are eternal. You're going to get a new body, a new heaven, new earth. You've got something totally different to live for in view of that. And it took the Passover blood. It took a cross, not just a physical lamb, but Jesus, crucified, nailed to a cross, the most shameful death ever invented, where men would sometimes hang for two to three days. Just sweating. You know, mosquitoes, even birds plucking out their eyes. Passing water. Passing unspeakable. Usually at face level, to be honest. We often see these paintings like that. No, no probably just level. Just utter, utter degradation. Jesus came into that. Jesus came into that. The God of glory, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Everything beautiful and glorious and wonderful. He made, humbled himself, took on human form. Humbled himself again, took on the form of a servant. And was obedient to death. Even death on a cross, exclamation mark. A terrible shame. Now, that's happened, beloved. That's what Paul is saying. How can you fool with? Come on, get rid of that old leaven. Who uses that analogy? That imagery of looking through the house. Is there anything of the old culture? Am I carrying anything from the old culture into my new life? The old value system? Is that affecting me? Am I carrying it into my new world? And Paul says to the Corinthian church, No! We don't carry over. We don't listen to David Cameron when he says, Church! Come on, catch up, it's 21st century. Don't you realize the 21st century has a different value system? Come on, you just need to catch up. No, we're not catching up. We're a different culture that's going to live forever. Forever. Where we'll drink wine with Jesus. He said, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. But somehow we're going to be nourished. Somehow we're going to have bodies. We're going to have people. We're going to be people with real earth. It's a future of glory, of unspeakable majesty. Why would we want to carry over this stuff that belongs to the old culture? So Paul is saying to these Corinthians, come on, we live different. We don't try and impose a Christian culture on a pagan society. We don't try to impose morality. We bring Jesus And once you come to him and are hiding in his Passover, you change radically. You are radically different. We are a radical people. I stood outside the university a couple of days ago and just stood there and I saw these students pouring in and out, registering for the news home. I thought, Lord, we're going to be right here, right in the heart of town. You're already in the ranks, many of you. But we're to represent a completely different culture. Not trying to catch up with a perverted culture. That's where it all started. Paul came into a perverted culture and raised up a new people.
an Exodus people, a Passover people. And that's what we're to be, beloved. We're to be a people of another society. We need to be unlearning things that we once treasured, things that we thought were were important. We suddenly realize, no, that's foreign. That's foreign to God's culture. That doesn't belong. That's old yeast. If I take that in, that's going to mess me up. If I carry that over, that's going to defile. And then, beloved, we, we find that more about we're together. And Paul talks about, and we're one loaf. We're one loaf. In a moment, we'll break bread. My time's gone. A lot of this imagery, the communion, I'm not sure we've got it exactly right. I wonder if it should always be over a normal meal. I'm sure it was in the New Testament. But we will take something that looks like bread and something that looks a bit like wine. Wouldn't pass any wine tests. But we're trying to say, this is who we are. And if you know the Lord Jesus and you know your confidence is in his death, you're so welcome to break bread with us and have communion with us. And if you don't know the Lord, I would just say, don't, don't take part. That's what it was from the beginning. It's for the people who believe and who know and thank God so much for the Passover. And we say, yes, Lord, we, we take, we receive, we're so grateful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your provision. Thank you, you prepared, you provided a lamb. We thank you, Abraham discovered that so early on. The Lord provides the lamb. Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh God, thank you. That you took our guilt. You died in our place. We thank you for the invitation to come, to remember, to participate, to have communion with you, Lord Jesus. To enjoy it your embrace. And we thank you we do this until you come. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We thank you we've got a new center of gravity. You're coming. You're ushering in the total victory that lies ahead. Lord, thank you so much for this bread and for this wine. Help us to live in the good of it. Help us not to carry over. Maybe you just need to pause in your heart. Are you carrying over? that leaven that belongs to another culture, your conversation, your friendships, how you spend your time. Don't carry it over. You need to just get rid of that old leaven. Let's be consistent. Jesus, our Passover. Let's enjoy him and enjoy his love. Let's be consistent that we've trusted in him. We want to live a life that pleases him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.